Hi, I'm Alex Buffman with Below the Radar, and you're listening to The Power of Disability with your host, community organizer, social entrepreneur, and author, Alan Mansky. This is a six-part series of the Below the Radar podcast. The Power of Disability features interviews with special guests centering on the contributions of people with disabilities. Hello, I'm Al Atmansky, and this is the Power of Disability podcast, highlighting what history has overlooked, the contributions of people with disabilities. Today's Power of Disability guest is Carmen Papalia. Carmen is a social practice artist um, who engages in participatory projects on the topic of access as it relates to public space, art institutions, and visual culture. Uh, Carmen's work has been featured as part of exhibitions and engagements uh, almost all over the world, uh, probably soon to be, but at the Guggenheim, the Museum of Modern Art, the National Art Gallery, BAMP Center, the Vancouver Art Gallery, Gallery Gaucher in the downtown east side, as well, the Tate uh, Liverpool. Carmen, you've received lots of awards for your work. Uh, you're, every time I talk to you, you are engaged in another grand project. I encountered your work from the point of view of a community organizer. So I found your art practice to be really helpful to me in understanding and highlighting the relationship between citizens and their institutions for, for movement building and, and frankly, for refreshing democracy. So I'm... I'm really excited to begin this conversation. Welcome. Thank you. Uh, thanks for having me. Karen, you've heard how I've described you. You probably have heard that before. It seems to show up in a lot of written descriptions of your work, but how would you describe yourself? Well, I, I'm an artist and activist. I, I'm disabled. I describe myself as a non-visual artist because I, you know, I do not use words like blind or visually impaired to describe myself since I feel those terms privilege visual experience. And at a point in time, I shifted value from the visual to the non-visual just in my own life. And I use my non-visual senses as my primary way of navigating my surroundings. And it really informs the way I connect with others. And yeah, and I make relationships. And yeah, so I say that I am a non-visual artist as a way to describe my relationship to visual culture. So you you made a choice as you described it. What Was there one event or was it just a series of realizations that eventually culminated in your declaration that you chose not to use terms like blind or legally blind or visually impaired? Was there one one particular moment? Well, it I guess it was when I stopped using vision as my central reference point and I started trusting my non-visual senses and really exercising my non-visual senses. I think this goes back to when I was in my undergrad at SFU and I was taking acoustic communications with Barry Truax, who is one of the uh, first few um, researchers who were studying, you know, the soundscape and acoustic ecology through work with Armory Schaefer. And so I was studying with Barry and was asked to, you know, kind of like 
<laughs> start actively listening and more uh, uh, listening more critically. And I just spent a lot of time outdoors in my neighborhood and various other public spaces learning to listen. And I really felt like at that point, my world opened up. And, you know, I never really thought, I mean, people ask sometimes, like, when did you lose your vision? And I never felt um, I've never felt like it was a loss. I've actually felt like it was almost like an opening up of experience and perception um, when I shifted value from vision to the non-visual. And that's really served as the basis of my art practice and my the way that I, I my line of critique when it comes to institutions and what we what we value in terms of art and with regard to the way we make relationships with each other as well. I had not realized that this was part of what influenced you is the, is the work of our Murray Schaefer. I have so much I want to talk to you about, but I can't, I can't continue without asking you a little bit more about that and his work in helping us appreciate the, the soundscape and whatever. I, I know very little about it, but I have come to appreciate his work. Can you tell me how that got integrated into your practice? Yeah, I, I mean, I think I built a practice around listening through that introduction to Armory Schaefer's work and Barry Truax and the the few, you know, I, bet, I think it was about six um, researchers, including researchers, including Barry, that were invited to conduct the World Soundscape Project, which was a, a project that happened through SFU and uh, included Barry as well. So, and through this work, like, <laughs> you know, the thing that really drew me in was this idea that you know, prior to this research, there weren't really words to describe the various dimensions of the soundscape. There wasn't the word soundscape. So, you know, this entire vocabulary and field of study grew out of like a dedicated intentional practice, which, um, you know, I really appreciate, I, you know, in my own practice now as an artist, I really establish spaces and opportunities for people to practice using their non-visual senses and also to exercise their non-visual senses. And I, I really think it is through that dedicated practice that we could find new words, find new ways to perceive, find new meaning in, say, for, for example, the collected art object, we catalog art objects based on their visual characteristics, and those serve as kind of like descriptors in the museum catalog. And there are a few artists and scholars that I'm, I, I work with who are trying to develop new ways of approaching an art object, say, through the tactile sense, a uh, critical framework for, you know, what could we what could we learn about an object if we were to feel it versus looking at it? How would culture have evolved or organized if we were a feeling culture versus a visual culture? Um, these are kind of the questions that I'm interested in. And, and I really kind of started thinking about these things when I was introduced to this whole world of soundscape studies. When you use the word feeling culture, that 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 resonates on so many different levels <laughs> so from from a market culture <laughs> or society to a feeling society resonates with me in in many ways a lot of your performance pieces are are related to this conception that you've just described and i don't know which one to pick i, I mean maybe there's a more recent one that will illustrate it but i i know in for example in white cane amplified you walk down uh, an un unfamiliar street with a with a megaphone and use the megaphone to ask passerbys for guidance about where you're going and and I think there you illustrate 
the social function of the cane may be actually to prevent people from following their natural instincts. I don't know if that's the best illustration of what you're talking about, but there's mobility device where you walk down the street to the sound of a marching band and use that as your navigation system. Mm-hmm. Is there something, uh, could you comment on those or, or is there something more recent in your work at BAMP, for example, that gets at this question of a, an appreciation of the soundscape of a piece of art? You know, I, I, I think, so most of my work around the non-visual senses now are, are really about tactility and, but, you know, I, I guess, you know, I'm, I'm working with an a, a artist here locally named Colin Van Uchelen, who is the originator of this method for translating fireworks through subjective description and then tactile gestures made on the recipient's back. So this was a partnership. It, uh, this method was employed through this partnership with this organization in Vancouver called Vocal descriptive arts where members of the blind and low vision community could have fireworks displays during during the celebration of light translated for them using Colin's method. I'm working with Colin right now around this this long-term project of he really has his vision for choreographing a fireworks display of his own design and I'm I'm supporting him towards that that goal. However, those works that you referenced, like mobility device with the marching band and uh, white cane amplified with the megaphone, they're really about my uh, relationship to the white cane and to a symbol that I feel is very much positions me and for its connection to an institution, the disability support institution. I really felt like when I adopted this cane, I was adopting these politics and that I wasn't really comfortable with. Um, I, I, you know, there are certain ideas around what I had to do as someone who is disabled to like find my way back into my community, to become independent, to reintegrate where I already had connections in my community that were meaningful to me and a way of learning that I think I was trying to, you know, I felt like, like I, I was, you know, made to assimilate back into vision culture, which I felt was not really, I was not really comfortable with. So ever since I started using a cane, I've modified it. And so currently I use a graphite cane. Um, It used to have the the white and red tape, reflective tape on it, but I peeled it off. And uh, now the cane is just, it's black. It it just has the the, uh, graphite material showing and and a wooden handle. And I really removed the tape in order to turn the volume down on the message that the cane is constantly transmitting, which is, I can't see you and I need help, which isn't always the case. Um, With mobility device, by replacing my cane with a marching band, I really was able to choose what I want to use to navigate my surroundings. It's very like a playful sort of uh, proposal and also just a very fun project to engage in, having a group of musicians kind of serving as my navigation system. I think that project too is about this support network that coalesces when a group of people kind of like meet around someone's access needs. With White Cane Amplified, I was really, instead of letting the the traditional like standard issue White Cane speak for me and transmitting that message, I really wanted to, you know, use the words that I used to describe myself. So like saying, I literally literally was saying like, I can't see you. I hope you can see me. I hope I don't bump into you. If you see me coming, please step out of the way. And I would find myself at the, you know, and I wasn't using a cane. I was just using this megaphone. I found my 
way to like a, a street corner and just had to wait there until someone kind of responded to for my call to help me cross the street. So for me, that work is really about, you know, me reclaiming the social function of the white cane and really putting that call for assistance out to my community in, in my own way. Did you have confidence that your community would respond? I think it was more of like an experiential research kind of process and like an improvised process. So I didn't know really what I would discover. But the first person who did help me cross the street in my first performance of this work in uh, 2015 in Vancouver was like an eight-year-old kid that just like said, oh, do you need some help? And and help me cross the street. And I was on my way. So yeah. And, you know, this was kind of in contrast to the guy who yelled at me out his pickup truck window. <laughs> so it's, yeah, it, you never know. But, you know, I think this experience is much different than, say, when I was using a white cane. And it would just like, it was really a magnet for attention and really for people to, you know, literally just grab my arm sometimes and try to help me cross the street, even like when I didn't necessarily need it. And maybe in these interactions, you know, there were so, so, yeah, they happened so fast that I wasn't really even able to advocate for myself. So, you know, I, I, I mean, this would happen, you know, as soon as I, I started using a, a white cane, like way, way back when. And I think, I think my art practice in some ways, art practice in some ways is, is a way to address that social interaction, the, the, the assistance that I get that is not on my terms, um, the attention that I get that is, you know, that where people are regarding me or considering me in ways that don't line up with my own perception of myself. I want to talk a little bit about your relationship with the, the institutions who perpetuate a certain way of interacting engaging with having a relationship with with uh, people who are non-visual learners do you see yourself challenging that or are you is it is it worth reforming or transforming in any way i know you've written an accessibility manifesto to foster a more creative reciprocal ongoing relationship between citizens and their art institutions, at least, although it seems to me that it applies to all of our institutions. So I'm just wondering, and I do want to talk about your open access manifesto, but I'm just curious about, you know, is the existing institutional apparatus for people who are, who choose to be non-visual learners, is it, is it reformable at all? How, what is your relationship with that apparatus? I think, you know, there's still this idea of uh, assimilating into and and kind of like visual, the wider culture, the visual culture, and also visual etiquette that that even children are taught. And like I was, I was working at this camp at one point, and there's literally this kid who had two prosthetic eyes, and he was being, you know, told to look at people when he, he was talking to them. So, you know, that that just doesn't, for me, just doesn't make sense. Like that's, that's assimilation. That's coercive, I think. And, and really, I think not valuing the ways that a person uh, without sight learns. So, and I think this is really an extension of like the medical model of disability. So this idea that there are certain norms or established norms through, you know, medical practice that we try to rehabilitate or restore to, which are are false and and oppressive and, and harmful for many people. And so, you know, my connection to and 
and resistance of the um, medical model of disability isn't just, it doesn't come out of my experience of being a non-visual learner. I, I also have like a severe chronic pain condition that has put me in hospital since childhood and, and still does. So, you know, I, I spent a lot of time in hospital and have been in situations where I can't advocate for myself. So I really appreciate those uh, care relationships where that are reciprocal, that are accountable and that can be a conversation that can change over time versus, you know, this standard set of protocols or practices that people adhere to without using their discretions. I think it's my own traumatic experiences that have led me to like critique the institution, whether it's like an art institution or, you know, the medical institution. And I think these institutions in general are sites of, you know, re-traumatization. Like you might have been traumatized in a medical institution, but the museum might be a site of re-traumatization for you, how authority presents itself or how the expert is privileged or just even through some of the processes that you need to go through in order to gain access, you know, and I'm not minimizing the harm of the medical institution. I think it's very harmful and it really does. I think medical practice uh, is, is really intertwined with ableism and for the reason that it tries to, I think, restore to a certain norm or idea of the body that I think is 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 false. I think people's bodies are there's so much variation, and I think we kind of through the medical framework we've limited the possibilities for how we can learn and interact with each other, and you know appreciate the various ways of being that our bodies make available. I think about six years ago, uh, maybe it was earlier, but I first started to pay attention to your work through a piece you wrote, a manifesto that you wrote, an accessibility manifesto. I I think the tagline was for the arts, but I've just seen it as an accessibility manifesto for citizens in terms of their relationship with institutions. Can you describe that manifesto? And we'll have links to it. it. It should be read and in my view, studied uh, line by line, it's it's pure gold. But can you give us an overview of the accessibility manifesto? Yeah. So in in 2015, I wrote this piece called Open Access, and it was really me writing about my own position on the topic of accessibility. You know, what does accessibility mean beyond compliance, beyond a policy model, where a you know a set of recommendations are kind of adhered to or or legal repercussions. (laughs) That for me is a very limited framework for what it means to care for other people. So yes, the piece that you're talking about is called Open Access. And I I did a short interview in Canadian Art about open access and that they added the tagline, an accessibility manifesto for the arts. But really, I, I had intended that piece as just like an accessibility manifesto for anybody who is in a caring relationship with anybody else. A lot of what's uh, touch on in that piece is is re- really, I think, in line with many of the uh, principles of the disability justice movement. That is a rather recent movement that grew out of California in uh, the early 2000s and really calls for, I think, interdependence. And I think, you know, it is a response to harmful patronizing like service provision models for accessibility. It's really like a disability-led movement that aims to like build capacity for care that's not otherwise available due to like governmental failure and ableism and also like the violence of policing. So open access, I think, is kind of this conceptual framework 
where we can start thinking about accessibility as something that's very contextual, very situational, and that really relies on the people in the room at any given time, what their needs are, and how they can find support with each other and within their communities. I like to describe accessibility as a measure of agency. So do you have decision-making power? Do you have the ability to meaningfully participate? Not as a, just like where the terms have already been uh, like set for your participation, the few accessibility uh, protocols or invitations that one might get from like an institution to participate as a disabled person, but more as like an ongoing effort to hold space for a diversity of needs that are changing and emerging over time. And so really think about accessibility as like a, a temporary collectively held space. That's for me a very hopeful idea of what accessibility could be because then it it becomes this thing that we have to make commitments to, make agreements around in our communities and agreements that are living and that can change our changing needs. You've written in association with uh, open access, the statement, if the social conditions are disabling, then the, the culture will be disabling. And um, I'm wondering if you could explain that a little bit more, maybe in, you know, an example of somebody who is able to get into a building, but. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, so this is the limitation of something like like a compliance model for accessibility. So like you can implement the ramp to, you know, allow wheelchair users access to a building, but like, how are they going to feel once they're there? Are their needs understood? Are, are Is there ableism? Is there discrimination or bias around someone who's using a wheelchair? So I, I think accessibility really relies on the um, social, cultural, and political conditions of a space. And that really can change with the people who are, are in that space at any given time. So yeah. Yeah, I think social conditions lead to, if they are oppressive, lead to an oppressive culture and and vice versa, I think, too. You know, like I think our culture, ableism is still not understood or widely understood and people still hold biases that they don't understand as ableist. So I think there's a lot of like cultural competency work and cultural transformation that has to happen around ableism because we still prioritize productivity. We have certain ideas around what it means to show up and participate and contribute. And these are, are very much in opposition to the rhythms and uh, of the disabled body in many ways. And, and I think the value of people's lives, of people who are disabled, just currently are, we're in a bad place, I think, with COVID response and conversations around the medical and Assistance in Dying Act, uh, Bill C-7 as well, that is affecting folks with disabilities as well right now. So, sorry. <laughs> no, that's, that's okay. And what the listeners may not be aware of is that Bill C-7 proposes to expand criteria for accessing medical aid in dying to include uh, simply the condition of disability. Uh, not related to their context, to their life situations, to the uh, poverty they may be experiencing, et cetera. And it, it, it seems to me that that's an illustration of this movement away from a kind of almost rights-based, compliance-based uh, approach to disability, if you will, uh, by society to one that you mentioned already, which is disability justice oriented. I hesitate to use this metaphor. I'm not a hockey player, so I may not get it right, but or a hockey fan. But in my research for my book, I kept coming across references to disability justice from the folks in San Francisco that you mentioned, 
in my conversations with you and whatever. And it seems to me that where the puck is going in the disability movement is toward disability justice. And it's a, um, it's a beyond rights-based approach, understands the historical reasons for that, but it's beyond rights-based. Uh, you've already alluded to some of the reasons, but could you talk a little bit more about that, Carm? Uh, just maybe some of the key elements of the framework of disability justice? Yeah, yeah. So disability justice emerged in in California in around 2005. And it was when a group of Black, Brown, and queer activists came together at this performance collective called Sins Invalid. And um, some of these folks were Mia Mingus, Patty Byrne, Stacey Milburn. I think the whole, you know, the movement for disability justice, the fact that it is not a rights-based movement, I think it recognizes that uh, rights are fragile for folks, disabled folks, but also folks who are Black and Indigenous folks and people of color as well. I think it's really the heart of disability justice is mutual aid. So like building capacity for care that isn't otherwise available. And I think this has has really been something that's so important to the disability community and its survival through the pandemic is disability-led mutual aid and community-based mutual aid efforts that serve disabled folks. And disability justice calls for a movement led by those most impacted. It allows us to understand ourselves as complicated and as holding many identity positions. And it allows us to, you know, acknowledge the intersections between us and of our experience, but also the interdependencies between us. So people with disabilities, if they were formerly recognized, they would be the largest equity-seeking group. And you you could imagine that people are not just disabled, they they are disabled and hold um, many other experiences. And I think disability justice is this kind of alliance politic that allows us to ally with other movements and causes for collective liberation. And it really is a response to carceral ableism. It is a response to the violence of policing and of the control and of the medical model of disability. So it really is about community care and safety. And and in that way, I think really is connected to transformative justice. Thank you. And we'll have a link, you know, at the end of this podcast when it's, it's available, Karn, to Sins Invalid and to a disability justice primer that you've recommended called Skin, Tooth, and Bone. Subtitle is The Basis of Our Movement is Our People. And um, this, this maybe is too philosophical, but in from, let's say, from my generation, the way you speak about this echoes the work of uh, the French philosopher Simon Weil, going back to the Second World War. What I keep hearing from you when you talk about our collective, our interdependence, our collective liberation, uh, mutual aid, the role of caring, caring relationships. I mean, a short summary of that would be the word love. And Wheel was her whole approach to post-Second World War was our our collective responsibilities to each other. <laughs> it wasn't our uh, the context. It was not in the context of rights. So. It conjures up that for me, as well as the work of Paulo Ferreira and uh, this, this whole area of education. One of his books was The Education for Critical Consciousness. So in this work, are you is, is this emerging exclusively from experiences? Are there, are there links into other movements, other liberation struggles? I'm just curious about that. Well, 
Yeah, I mean, it really does come out of experience for me, uh, being someone who's relied on medical services since I was a kid and still do. I had like many traumatic experiences throughout my life that kind of had me question about what is a caring relationship and what is a a care like what are you know like what what are these dynamics between the caregiver and the person who requires care that are are not not working here and i'll I'll reference mia mingus who coined this slogan access is love and i think it really does come down to that as at a basic level and like what does it mean to care for someone with complex and changing needs? What does it mean to include them? And what does it require to include them? And should you proceed if they're not able to be there? I hear a lot of institutions like, okay, we want to make an accessible event and we can have captioning, but not ASL. And, you know, like that, we can't afford ASL and captioning. So we're going to choose one. But ASL is is a first language for uh, folks who use it and captioning isn't a replacement for ASL. So like I just I don't I don't really understand that kind of wager like, OK, we can we can do this, but we can't include these people. And I, I just kind of ask, who are we? What, you know, what does it mean to, like, if you're in community with these disabled people, if you have relationships with them, care about them, you know, what does it mean to have us all together in a room and participating in, in a meaningful way where, like, my participation hasn't already been defined for me before I get there, which is often the case when it comes to, like, the invitations you get, say, or that I would get when I go to, say, a museum, and there's, like, one of three ways I can experience a museum exhibit. I you know, I, I often say that people aren't going to really care about people who are disabled or about disability until they start understanding it as a culture, disability as a culture. Yeah, that's really what I think disability justice centers is disability culture it protects disability culture and the cultural protocols associated with it, some of which are around access needs and um, just like that ongoing care that folks need. Because I think, yeah, outside of those spaces, those intentionally, those temporary collectively held spaces, we're having to take on all that labor ourselves. And I think when we're in community with other disabled people, we kind of have this, there's that power in being around other people who have already agreed to uh, support around your terms. And yeah, that, that is kind of a culture I want to live in, but not just in these temporary collectively held spaces. I want that to be like my daily experience. <laughs> so that's that's kind of what I, I'm hoping to do in my work about accessibility is, is really shift those perceptions around what it means to care or show up for disabled folks. Karm, one of the ways your work is evolving or the container you've created for some of this work now, you have multiple containers, but is the work you're doing with uh, Mia, Susan, and the Open Access Foundation for Arts and Culture. Can you just tell us briefly what what that is? I know you're just beginning, yeah. but you've got big plans. Yeah, so just this year, we've registered this nonprofit to uh, a bunch of me, my, my collaborator, Mia, Susan Amir, and a few of our collaborators working with us registered this nonprofit to like extend our work and 
and our impact. We we already had been carrying on a conversation about accessibility beyond an accommodation model, uh, beyond compliance for years. Many of us worked or met through places in Vancouver like Gallery Gachet and Vancouver's downtown east side neighborhood or the Purple Thistle Center uh, when it was around as well and really have been doing our own kind of access work and kind of like advocacy work around um, various uh, ways of being for a long time. And so after the pandemic and the uprising for Black Lives, we really thought this as, as maybe an opportunity to encourage institutions who say that they want to do the work of accessibility to hold them to new commitments around accessibility and inclusion from a more disability justice perspective. So, you know, our organization is a cultural organization that is rooted in the principles of disability justice and trauma-informed care. And, you know, open access, my, my open access manifesto serves as a guiding text in some ways, but um, one of our major projects that we're working on right now is the ability to facilitate an accessibility consortium for local museums, galleries, and artist-run centers who want to make new commitments to accessibility from more of a disability justice perspective. So we're not really talking about these standard offerings of translation services. Although those are important and necessary for our, our participation, we're really talking about cultural competency and uh, cultural transformation around ableism. So we are, you know, have have a, a, a bunch of uh, museums, galleries and, and or organizations now that are interested in being part of this consortium. We are going to hope, you know, to establish a network where member organizations can, you know, share commitments and make new commitments and also, you know, have this network who our organization will have this ability to push these organizations towards certain goals that we'll be establishing through community consultation. So our organization, I, we are, me and Mia are, are um, co-directing this organization right now. And we have like a 10-person advisory committee who all hold lived experience coming from different backgrounds and experiences all around the topic of accessibility. And we think of them as the half of my and Mia's decision making and, and also just as the heart of the organization. So they really hold community connections that we are accountable to and very much in our early phases right now. But we we have some really big plans and to do some really good work with local organizations and have been getting a lot of support to do it, too. So we're not even we don't have a public presence yet. So this is kind of the first time I've talked publicly about it. Well, thanks for thanks for doing that. And uh, more to come. I have no doubt. Last question, uh, Carm. Uh, you, you mentioned earlier that you're doing all the labor yourselves, people with disabilities say. For, so for the non-disabled person who wants to be an ally or wants to be a better ally, a lot of learning involved. I'm, I find myself shedding constantly all my assumptions about how best to be an ally for disabled people. So any beginning suggestions for uh, for people who genuinely, authentically want to be an ally? Yeah, I think you have to like know people who are disabled. You have to get to know them, make relationships with them, take their leadership, especially disabled folks who are, who are Black or Indigenous or, or uh, folks of color. You know, the we really do. I think I would I would point to the, the principles of the disability justice movement and, and really, uh, you know, yeah, like 
embody those principles if you can. Um, I think I think really question your assumptions about you know some of these ableist notions that are pretty common or or pervasive in our culture. You know around you know what the standard presentation of the body is or what you know what it means to contribute to one's community. I think we have to question these assumptions and and really you know unlearn ableism because I think it's built into our culture and institutions. So I think really you know, we need to take leadership from people who are disabled and the most marginalized among us. And yeah, kind of re-envision our public spaces, our worlds, our futures around the demands and desires of the disabled community and people who have been historically excluded. Yeah, I think, I think, you know, a a bright possible future for me is like a radically interdependent future that where we can make countable and reciprocal relationships with each other across disabilities, across experiences between disabled and non-disabled people. Mm, thank you. That's a, that's a great statement to, to end with. It's a future I think we all can identify with and, and aspire to. So Carm, thank you. Thanks for speaking with me today. As I mentioned earlier, if you can read more about Carm by clicking on the website, you, you can access all of his work uh, and and when his new project <laughs> is ready with, with Mia, we'll link that on there as well. If you want to read more about Carmen's work and the, and the power of disability, you can check out my latest book, which uh, profiles Carm and other people in the disability justice movement. My book is called The Power of Disability, 10 Lessons for Surviving, Thriving, and Changing the World. And we'll talk to you next time. Thanks for listening. This has been the third part of The Power of Disability, a special six-part series of the Blow the Radar podcast. Check back next Thursday for the fourth installment. This series is curated and hosted by the community organizer, social entrepreneur, and author, Alec Natsky. Theme music for The Power of Disability is There Is Nothing Wrong With Me, Epilepsy by Todd Osecki. The production of this series is supported by SFU's Van City Office of Community Engagement. Disease disorder